Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. I thank you for joining us. With me in the studio today, it's the only living Gearbrandt in captivity, Mr. James. And making his studio debut, it's the former Nottingham Forest and uh, many other clubs left back, Gregor Robertson. If you're a Times reader, you will know him by his uh, pseudonym, The Journeyman. He's a football player turned writer, and I can confirm this. You may say, what's the big deal? Cascarino's a football player turned writer as well. Gregor, you actually write your own stuff? Yes, I can write joined up sentences, I think. You don't have you don't have a ghostwriter? You, <laughs> no. you you actually go and I'm not famous you, enough for that, I'm afraid. Today is what they call a bank holiday. To our listeners overseas, we live in a country that's basically run for and by the finance industry. So um, in other countries you might have holidays like Christmas and the Assumption. Here they're called bank holidays because the bank shuts and all the minions and all the servants go and stay home. All of them, that is, except for us, because we're here bringing you the game podcast. And so other people have chosen to go and spend time with their families. The three of us are losers. We're all in here together with our producer, Charlie. We're going to be joined by another loser later, Paul Hurst, who's also working today on a bank holiday Monday. He spent some time uh, interviewing Will Keane. Uh, of course, he's the twin brother of Michael, who suffered a horrific injury. So I think it's a tremendous moving interview from uh, from a young man who hopefully we'll see back at the highest level soon. Also, James and I were down in Monaco for the Champions League draw and in James's case, for the Europa League draw as well. I also uh, had a sit down with uh, the UEFA president, Alexander Seferin, uh, and you can read about that in the game. We'll be breaking down a few issues surrounding that. All that said, there's only one place to start, and that's at Anfield. James, let's start with you. Liverpool 4, Arsenal 0. Who needs Coutinho? Well, you're sort of struggling to see where he might fit back into the team because obviously Liverpool play a, a 4-3-3 and I think we're all very excited by that spearhead of Mane and Salah either side of Firmino which is obviously a front three that offers great pace and directness. Coutinho has usually been played by Jurgen Klopp in one of the wide positions in that front three but he's not, in my opinion, a particularly natural fit for that position. Klopp did try playing him deeper towards the end of last season when he played against West Ham. He actually played quite well, but whether he would, you know, whether he's a long-term viability in... But that was against West Ham. Quite. <laughs> whether he's a long-term viability in that position, I'm not sure. And and clearly, Liverpool are playing exceptionally well without him. Onto the game itself, Gregor. Um, you know, the old cliche is like, oh, where is it Arsenal who were terrible or was it Liverpool who were good? Personally, I think there's a situation where both facts applied. Liverpool were outstanding and Arsenal... Were, were woeful. Liverpool were, were devastating. The, the the front three were absolutely electric. So much pace, uh, and Arsenal just lack any sort of moral fibre. It seems really. <laughs> that's pretty. That's James trying to get but... into an issue of morality. <laughs> is Arsenal immoral? I mean, somebody like Arsene Wenger is he immoral? Because that's that's what he's saying. Right? He's questioning. You're saying. Right. Does does Arsene Wenger have moral fibre? Yes, but I think possibly. But it doesn't reflect I think on his possibly team. The na- what do you mean the, by moral? The fiber? nature of a modern footballer. No, he's he's not able to get the required levels out of them anymore. I don't think. I think in in previous teams he's had somebody who would control the dressing room and who would pull well, somebody by the neck and give us some insight on that because I mean you were in dressing rooms, obviously not Arsenal level, but I think the dynamics presumably aren't that different further down. You guys just drive uglier cars. Um, <laughs> 
I'm assuming the players don't sit around and say like, well, Wenger's not giving a strong leadership. Let's all sulk and play badly. What is it? I mean, in, in the mind, because I mean, I saw some shocking performances. I, I thought Aaron Ramsey was, was horrendous and was horrendous the week before. I don't know if it's a question of, I don't know if he's injured or some, some issue with him. Um, Ozil's been crucified all the time. For those of us who watched it on television, his first 20 minutes and Gary Neville, I mean, he seemed like he was going to be physically physically ill. <laughs> no, honestly, he seemed so upset. They were just all terrible. Can you give a little insight into, into that dynamic? I mean, where does the player's responsibility end? We make a big deal out of effort. Sometimes from the stands, and I've had players tell me this, what looks like a lack of effort is actually, if you're trying to do something collectively, well, if Robertson runs and Gearbrandt doesn't, actually it doesn't necessarily mean that you're putting in effort and he's not because with him it might be about positioning and you might just be saying oh let me play to the crowd here and so what is it they're playing within themselves you see you see so so, so you're playing within themselves so that means they're afraid to make mistakes or they're yeah and they're sort of of self-aware about about their role in the team they're not entirely sure about what's happening that's that's why i think and and gary neville was saying that some the ball goes past them and they didn't turn around and run it's not like it's not like they're not trying. It's like if they lose the ball, I think there's a split second where you see them. Sometimes their arms will go up in the air, but that split second is enough to look like you're not trying. I think they're they're self-aware about the shortcomings and the, there's confusion as well with the with the the way they've been set up. And it's not it's just it's just not a, a happy camp at all. I mean, there was this extraordinary moment, James, which is on the highlights. I think it's going to live on YouTube forever. Where Arsenal have just cleared the ball. Um, they weren't doing well, and, and Ramsey and Oxley chamberlain are, are remonstrating with each other or with the bench. And meanwhile, on the opposite side of the pitch, they lose the ball, and they're under attack, and you know, and holdings on his own. I, I don't think I've ever seen that in professional football. I mean, I must have, because it must have happened before. Have you seen this before? Have you seen it before in, in professional football? I've seen players. It looked like Ramsey was talking to the bench. Or something. There was some confusion. I don't know what was going but on. But the, 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 with the two, him and Oxley Chamberlain just wander up the pitch. <laughs> they lose the ball on the other side. And have you seen that happen before? I, I don't. Off the top of my head, I don't. I Somebody just switching off so much. I can't remember seeing it happening in a goal. I mean, that's where you're getting the ultimate yeah. punishment for it. So. And whoever yeah. Ramsey's talking to, you would assume would have said like, you know, like turn around, <laughs> like you moron, and yeah. pay attention, do what you're paid to do because they're about to score. Could you imagine that happening with Antonio Conte on the touchline? I mean, he would have been absolutely raving at them to get back in, if that in had position. Happened, I think he'd be in prison right now, charging <laughs> with To be honest, I always thought with Wenger that maybe, maybe a few seasons ago, I would have thought Wenger would take his leave of Arsenal at some point, and then maybe he could go on and have a have a crack at, at another big job. He could go on and manage the France national team, for example, and obviously leave very much with his head held high correct and and i think it's not just hurting arsenal it's it's hurting wenger as well there were people chanting wenger out again we're going over all ground here nobody believes at this stage that it's going to happen i'll throw it out there if either one of you were staying cronky you'd have mustaches and be a lot wealthier than you are um would you say and just just say all right screw this ivan enough we're going to think for a year we need to rebuild let's just suck it up if those guys want to leave they leave let's just say goodbye to Wenger now and try to salvage something either one of you tempted to do that now or 
are you going to try out the line? Well, if you were going to do it, you would have done it last May. I'm afraid so. Yeah, I would have. I think that was the time to do it. But now. you won't do it now. I wouldn't do it immediately. No, I think unless it gets to a really, really bad stage, then I think they've got to they've got to stick with them for the rest of the season. I also think that bringing in a new manager now is not a great situation to to come into. You know, when Wenger goes. You want to hit basically a complete cultural reset at Arsenal, and that's very difficult to do if it's messy and you, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. But you know, theoretically, were you to sack Wenger mid-season and bring in Tuchel, for example, is the one that is the one that always comes up. But that I think that's that's a very hard situation for Tuchel to come into because you know he's obviously got to deal with the Ozil and Alexis and Oxide Chamberlain mess. I I know where you're going with this. Let let me throw this other scenario out to you. Mm. They're mid-table. In January, you realize season's toast. You might not even get Europa League. What if you pull the trigger then and you're like Thomas Tuchel and say, Thomas, you're going to come here for six months. We really don't care. As long as you don't get us relegated. And you won't because, of course, Brighton and Palace are in the division. Um, All you have to do is just go out and just assess. Assess everything at this club. There's no director of football. You're going to help us in the selection of a director of football. And it's not just going to be your mate. It's going to be somebody we decide together. Come in in January, evaluate who you want to be part of this. So we don't get into the, you know, the mistake that's often made, like Pep Guardiola comes in in the summer. He's like, oh, look, let me get Nolito because I know him and, you know, whatever else. Like evaluate the guys who are here. And then in May, we appoint director of football and then we go and we build this club up and we do it together. But in the meantime, you will have had those four or five months where you get to know every aspect of this club. And I don't care if you lose every game, as long as you don't get relegated, as long as you're learning. I still don't think they should do that, and I would, I would stick by what I said earlier, but I think one thing that can be advantageous about bringing in a manager mid-season, and like I say, I don't think they should do it, but gives you a little bit of a free hit. If, Klopp kind of had that. Correct, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Um, if you come in and it depends where Arsenal are, but if, as you say, hypothetically, let's say they're 8th or ninth or 10th or whatever... They're not imme- they're not immediately kind of bound by huge expectations like somebody like Guardiola was when you come in with like a full preseason behind you and everyone that you've had time to prepare. Another theme from this game is something that I personally don't particularly care about or have much to say about, but you guys might do. Any insight over Mignolet being dropped? Is he just being rested for the Belgian internationals for his time on the bench watching Courtois play? He's no, obviously I- been linked to a move, right? So... Anybody have anything to say about this? Anybody care? And we say, oh, it's good. Carey is completely good, but neither is this guy, so who cares? Does anybody have anything to say about this? Well, I'd be very surprised if he was really rested. There's something, something's happening, and uh, I think in Carius, it looks like they don't have somebody who's brimming with confidence either. So, so do you reckon it's some sort of punishment, maybe, for uh, something? Because Klopp, Klopp did say he's going to be back for the next game. Mm. I'd be amazed if something's not happened. I think it's very weird because there are so many obvious reasons why resting it doesn't make sense. I mean, the fact that it was the third game of the season, the fact that he's about to sit on the bench for two weeks. Surely if you were resting... The fact that he's a goalkeeper. The fact that he's a goalkeeper. <laughs> surely if you were resting Mignolet as well, you'd at least have him on the bench say, OK, fine, we're going to play Carrius, but you know, we're not going to put ourselves in a position where we're you know one freak injury away from having our third choice keeper playing unnecessarily in a big game against Arsenal. You'd also suggest the fact that it, it was kind of leaked and, and known about well before kickoff. That doesn't reflect that well on him either. Since we're in the realm of wild speculation, I'm just curious about the mechanism. That's a specific case. But I'm assuming, again, you've been in situations where a player's been dropped as punishment. 
Yes. Does that work? Is it like, oh, you've misbehaved or I mean, what prompts? I'm trying, I'm trying to imagine, right? If I'm a manager, if I have a guy who's a regular, right? So presumably he's better than the dude on the bench. For me to go and sit him because he hasn't trained well during the week or because he's had a row, is that a motivational factor in real life? Or well, does it only work with children? Because I'm assuming these guys are all professionals, right? What bigger punishment is there as a footballer than not playing? I think that's the manager's probably strongest card, I think. Yeah, but by the same token, the manager's hurting himself. If the manager doesn't come out and say, Robertson's not playing because he showed up hungover at training, then fine. So then the fans get on Robertson or whatever, right? Not many um, not many managers would do that. They want to keep these kind of things in-house and then he thinks this is the way I'll deal with it and if you can... If you can sort of rectify the, the relationship afterwards, then you're still the boss. Now, this season, with your subscription to The Times and, of course, The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. I think it's very good value for money. We like to ask our pundits to select their goal of the week and why. I suspect you both might have gone for the same one, which is fine. It's the one I would have picked, too. But, of course... Because Gregor's more handsome and he's a better footballer, presumably. I haven't seen Gear play football. Uh, I've seen much of you either, Gregor. Uh, but, um, Gregor, you go first. What was your goal of the weekend? It had to be Charlie Daniels' wonder strike against uh, Man City. It was audacious to even take on a, a, a shot and goal from there. And you won't really see a much more true and sort of elegant strike than that all season I don't think even in slow motion the move beautiful, so beautiful. <laughs> what's yours James well I, I mean, hope it's Salah <laughs> it's uh, the New Zealand Salah Chris oh, Wood yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of somebody who's possibly more the opposite of Salah in every way I suppose who's the guy? Who's the guy who's built like a house? Is it Akin Fenwa? I'm thinking of. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's probably the anti, the ultimate anti Salah. Chris Wood isn't that far off. I have to confess, I, I would have gone for Charlie Daniels as well, but I, I really like this goal as well, and I, and I think particularly because of the pass played by Robbie Brady, which was just an absolutely... He's a player and a half, that he, guy. He really is. Um, and this was just an absolutely superb ball, kind of bent in between Kieran Trippier and Toby Alderweireld. And I actually think, to, <laughs> to give a little bit of credit to Chris Wynn, it was a really good finish with Alderweireld kind of sliding across him. Well, he held his nerve. Because he's, he's, he, know, he knows he's going to get wiped out. Absolutely. And he, you know... And he, you know his debut after a big money move he sort of hasn't cut it in the Premier League previously big match the ball sort of coming slightly across him and he hits it first time and it, it was it wasn't as good a strike as Charlie Daniels but it was it was a pretty good strike well done Chris Wood alright let's go to the south coast for our second game um, Manchester City getting a late 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 uh, winner uh, to beat Bournemouth 2-1. James, we know that you can concede a goal at any time in City and the run of play and all this other stuff. But that was a big dog's breakfast at the end, wasn't it? It seems like everybody's getting booked. Everybody's like, Otamendi does the roulette. Josh King at one point, I think he shoots. It's like, I, I don't know if he lost track of time, but it was like the 95th minute. And again, maybe it's someone, actually, sorry, maybe if you want to pipe in as well, Gregor, but like, I'm watching it. And it's like, I think it was minute 95. 
and he, he, he breaks through. He's got, I don't know, Otamendi or Daniel or some schlub back there. And, and I'm like, he's outside the box. I'm like, just run towards a corner and wait for wait for the guy to go through you, right? This weekend actually featured two examples of how not to play out time. Bournemouth and also I thought Tottenham as well against Burnley. In both cases, had the ball in the opposition half, had, you know, not one, but two or three chances. You know, they were in possession to kind of get the ball in the corner or whatever. And they didn't. And yeah, as you say, it was it was a mess. I don't think that's really Bournemouth, though, is it? I think Bournemouth, <laughs> Bournemouth would, be, would have been going for the winner, too. They're, so they're a pretty want, ballsy team, I and, think. Yeah, and also because it's two extra points if he gets it, right? It's not like a situation so, where you're protecting true. a win. Yeah, so yeah, maybe you wouldn't want to discourage a player or a teammate from doing that, from shooting outside the box if he feels he can score in that situation. Yeah, I mean, he could completely... Would you? He'd come pretty well. I know I'm a defender. I would have been. I would have been angry afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but I can understand his point of view. There, he's going. He's going to try and be the hero and get the winner. Have you ever done that? Have you, did you, ever, did you ever shoot from like outside the box in that situation when like and like your your better players are like Robertson, get back in your box. Uh, no, I, I, I would have taken that ball in the corner every time. Okay. <laughs> Before we get into what happened at the end, we saw Monday night in the Everton game. I think. Pep changed formation and personnel sort of continuously through the game. He, he he did it again. I was not expecting the great Aguero, Gabriel Jesus experiment to end so soon. If it has ended, maybe it hasn't ended. Maybe it's just a one-up. Um, Bernardo Silva starting out wide. Do you think this is Pep trying to feel the right team in the right circumstances, or is he still trying different options and then he's going to settle down a little bit and, and have sort of a slightly clearer hierarchy? I think there is probably an, an element of experimentation, yeah, and I think it's an obvious point, but they, they have got so many players that they've paid a lot of money for that they need to accommodate. The person that I, I feel sorry for in this, who so often gets shunted around, I think he's a brilliant player, is Kevin De Bruyne. His season last season was extremely underrated, and I think he, he finished only, I think, too short of the all-time record of assists in a Premier League season held by Thierry Henry, despite being constantly shunted around into about five different positions, playing, you know, deep central midfield, playing wide on the right, playing in the sort of number 10 role, even playing as a false nine at times. And in this game, he played in it. He, he may have played that last season, but I'm not sure, playing on the sort of side of the middle three in a, in a 4-3-3, which is another position in, entirely, which... It's hard for him because I think Kevin De Bruyne, I think, can be one of the absolute, you know, he, could, he, he he's a player who's capable of being player of the season in a title winning side. I think he's he's that good, but it's very hard for him if he's constantly being. See, I, I find this really interesting because I think this applies to any sport, right? So if you have Messi, if you have Pogba, if you have Eden Hazard, or if, you know, further down in relative terms, worse players than that, then some managers will say, well, this is my difference maker. I'm going to build the team around him to suit his skills. I don't get the sense that there's anybody at City who is, there's, they have a tremendous amount of, of, of outstanding players, but I don't think that there's anybody there who Pep considers to be head and shoulders above everybody else. Maybe he should, right? Gearbrandt might say, well, De Bruyne probably should be the guy you build the team around. Um, well, what's your take on Gregor? Have, have you played with somebody who's just so much better than everybody else and you had a manager who 
who said, all right, you know, let's let, let me play him instead of him, and let's so that so and so can really lead us. Yeah, Andy Reid when when we were at Nottingham Forest in his kind of young days, he was he was head and shoulders above above everyone in the team and. And the and manager arranged the team around his skills. No, but he, he, he although sure he was left midfield, he sort of vacated that place quite a lot, and and uh, they let and him left let him do left back exposed. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I've never forgiven him for that. He had a lot of uh, license to roam. Um, I would agree with what what James said, and I said I, I think that if there is any one player that Pep regards as someone to build a team around, it probably is De Bruyne. For that reason, he almost thinks he's good enough to kind of fit into any of these positions. And I think they could get more from him, which which is a bit of a conundrum for him. I think. I, I don't think he's necessarily. I don't think he's necessarily head and shoulders above no. everyone else in the Man City squad. I mean, it, it's a squad full of brilliant players, and I don't think he's necessarily in a different league to everyone else. But I just think he would benefit from a bit more consistency. Or would the team benefit? In other words, would would the benefit to De Bruyne mm. does that is that somehow offset by the fact that here you've got a guy who's so flexible and so versatile? I think because David Silva can do a lot of what De Bruyne does. There's mm. other players who can do that. So sometimes you can play him with in the silver role. Sometimes you move him wide. Sometimes you move. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he does get shunted around, but maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just kind of views him as just like another cog in, in the Pep machine. It, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't get the impression that Pep Guardiola is going to settle on a really sort of fixed starting eleven, And that in itself is quite interesting, given that in the Premier League in the last two seasons, we've really seen the triumph of consistent week in, week out. You know, you could recite the team starting 11s. I'd, go further. I'd say even last three seasons. Yeah, you're probably yes, when, you're prob- you're, you know when you're Chelsea won right. the first yeah, time with, with Mourinho. It's a remarkable approach, remarkable end to the game as well. With uh, it seemed like he booked like ten people in the last five minutes. Um, but basically, long and short of it, and what what caused a lot of people is Raheem Sterling scores this dramatic goal in the 97th minute. And again, you can also talk about. I think they gave five minutes of injury time, and it went on. Although. There were bookings and interruptions or whatever. But what got a lot of people talking is he then celebrates. He runs towards the crowd, but doesn't actually, I don't even think he exited the field of play. But it is Bournemouth, meaning it's an old stadium. It's probably like a League One ground. Um, a mess of City fans stream forward, stewards. And there was a bunch of cops in there as well. Either that or people wearing those funny cop hats. And the situation emerges, and he gets and he gets booked. Simply put, I don't want to debate about excessive celebration. Is it right? Shearer had strong words about it. Can we expect a player to be aware of the situation around him and say, well, all those guys, there's a good chance that they're going to run on the pitch and there might be a crusher or stampede. Maybe I shouldn't go celebrate with them. I mean, is that a reasonable request? You're shaking your head? No. You're with Shearer? Pretty much. I think he was a bit strong, but I think... I think really, if you if you're someone who can control your emotions after scoring a an 87th minute winner, uh, I think the supporters would want the player to come and celebrate with them. If you were to ask majority of fans, they wouldn't want somebody just to sort of run back to the middle and. Did uh, you always run to the fans? I didn't score many, so. Okay, uh. You must have occasionally, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's part of scoring a goal. It's the you celebration. Ran, you didn't run to your teammates. You ran towards the fans. Well, we all congregated by the. By the fans. Did you ever take off your shirt? Absolutely not. And do a pose? No. No? <laughs> no? I get what Gregor's saying, 
by the same token, there's a health and safety aspect. I mean, is, is, is the blame actually for this? I know it's not Bournemouth's fault. Nobody's fault on the fact that the Vitality is an old stadium. It's built the way it's built. It's also not going to be made. Hey, look, if you're a City fan, you've also, you've seen last sec, last second goals before. In fact, you've seen the greatest last second goal of all. So you've kind of been there, done that. You know, sorry, Raheem. It did get a bit rowdy looking. I mean, there's no there's no yeah. two ways about that. But is there, is there not also an argument to be said for they weren't on the pitch, none of them. And who? Well, the, the supporters weren't really on the pitch. It was still off the pitch. Well, they, they weren't in the stand. Yeah, but what are these supporters going to do, do to their own player? This is if the if the if the stewards. But the, the, the reason they can't... intervene though isn't because they think that they're going to go and attack their own players or attack Eddie Howe. It's because there might be old ladies and children who get trampled on. This is what this is the whole point of health and safety, right? This is the argument that they always make. If you've got. So do you think the stewards can do anything about that if supporters are surging towards the front? They're not going to go into the stand and protect little old ladies. No, but when you make it clear that you're not, you can't get on the pitch. I mean, I again, I'm not an expert in policing, but from what I've been told, when when they make it clear that there's no way you can get on the pitch, then there's no reason to go and and try to, you know, and still and, and, pile down to the front and try and get as close to their to their. You can pile down, but you're not going to keep piling when there's twenty when when there's twenty deep in front of you. I I, I think that's that's the general idea with with stewards and police. It's fine point on on Bournemouth um, because I, I'm I'm fascinated by Eddie Howe mainly because I don't understand much about him. Um, I can see a team that plays really really nice football, um, a team where he's obviously spent a ton of time on the training pitch, getting people to do coordinated movements, which is something I really believe in. I, I'm all for creativity, but I also think if you have coordinated movements, if you know where your teammates are going to be at all time, then an average player can do things that a very good player can do um, because he simply has more time on the ball and, and whatever else. Um, I like the fact that they're attacking. I don't know that they spent their money super wisely. I would not have signed Jermaine Defoe, much as I like him as, as an individual, more importantly, and also as a footballer. And they've obviously had a bumpy start to the season, Gregor. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 the same. As, uh, I I really like Eddie Howe. I went down to do a piece last season at Bournemouth, and I, I watched him train, and it was fascinating. The kind of his attention to detail. He spent about an hour setting up each individual part of the training session, and he and he would move a cone kind of a few inches, and then they would practice the, I mean, the movements. Suggested part of the reason they new signing sometimes it takes them longer to have an impact is because they're just not used to working. So intense. It was so intense, yeah. Each is Did you speak to Eddie afterwards? Yeah. Did did his eyes creep you out? Did they bore into you? Did you yeah, think lasers yeah. were gonna come out and like <laughs> Yeah, he seems really kinda of friendly, but he's uh He scares you, didn't he? He's a little bit intense, yeah. 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 You can see that. He's got a steely side to him. But I agree, I think he's he's very, very interesting guy and, and uh whether Bournemouth can, can go better than, than a kind of ninth place finish last season. It's going to be tough. Well, with his start, too. I mean... It's, it's going to be tough. What would constitute success for Bournemouth this year? Top half, you'd have to say. You always want to improve. He will say what you want to improve on last season, but it's going to be tough. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Tremendous interview, uh, feature interview in uh, uh, the game uh, on Monday. In fact, um, possibly one of my favorite non-George Culkin pieces in uh, uh, in, in recent months. Uh, Paul Hurst sat down uh, with Will Keane, and, um, and and Paul joins us on the line now. Now, Paul, for those who don't know, before you tell us about meeting Will, can you tell us about the background to him? Because some people might not be familiar. Yeah, and um, Will Keane is is um, is the brother of of Michael Keane, uh, the twins, and they were both picked up by Manchester United when they were uh, very young. I think it was eleven years old, um, and they both went into the academy. Um, and he both blossomed through it. You know, he, they both made their first team debuts, and Michael obviously left for for Burnley um, when Louis Van Gaal was in charge. But Will was a striker, a quite, quite tall, athletic striker. And they always had big hopes. But unfortunately, he just had a, a terrible run of injuries. Sir Alex Ferguson gave him his United debut. Then he did his cruciate on international duty. Uh, came back. Um, he was loaned out to, to four championship clubs. And then, you know, admitted defeat, really, um, after after getting another... Uh, you know, admitted that his United career was over after he got another terrible groin injury. And then went to Hull... So it was a new chapter in his life, a fresh start, started well, started playing well for Hull. And then lo and behold, he does his cruciate in the same knee a few matches into his, his Hull career. So, you know, he's back to back to square one again. But he's, he's a remarkable guy, really. He, he To say that, you know, he, he was obviously affected by 
this, you know, the, the second cruise ship that he's done. But he's, he's, he's get up and go, he's remarkable. He's not downbeat about this at all. He's still got a, a hunger and a desire for the game. Uh, so he's, he's really a really pleasant guy to interview, and it's a, a fascinating story, really. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated also by, by just, just the background. I mean, Michael Keane's one of, my, one of my favorite players, and I just imagine these two playing against each other as kids and how like they just would have made each other made each other better but there's this incredible duality I mean partly with with Rashford that, that you mentioned because obviously that like they could have been Will Keane in that position but I think also with the fact that you know his brother you know all things being equal his, his brother's avoided I mean I know he's had a couple injuries but he's avoided all this did, did he talk about that did, did he I mean, uh, about his relationship because obviously when we're talking about twins. It's a it's a difficult bond for the rest of us to understand. Yeah, he's, Will said that basically they, they were obviously best mates as kids. They always the best thing about having a twin, he said, was was having someone to play with. You know, they, and they would play any kind of sport together. It would be football, tennis, golf, and they were uber competitive. He said that they always ended up bickering, always ended up fighting. That was a kind of competitive nature. Uh, he'll show the competitive nature of, of the two of them. Um, and he said, he said that Michael's been an inspiration for him. He, he could quite easily be very jealous of Michael. You know, he's had a big money move to Everton. He's in the England squad, while Will spent the last, you know, two or three years out, basically, or barely playing any football. But he, there's no animosity towards Michael from Will. He's helped him through this uh, situation there. Uh, Michael, he's got another brother called Tom, and they, they've basically been his kind of rock for, for the last couple of years through this uh, difficult time for him he has been very very instrumental in in helping will get back to or get back to you know close to full fitness paul what's the what's the outlook now what's the, i mean there's a tremendous photograph here by our uh, one of our photographers um bradley warmisher um what's the outlook now what's the prognosis now will reckons he'll be back fit by uh, by november he's had a Quite a, you know, obviously a very detailed rehabilitation program for Will. He's, he's done a lot of gym work, but he returned to the, uh, he was back out on the field at the start of July. Leonard Slutsky started integrating him into the, into the first team training. He kind of involves him in the team talks and talks about team shape with him. So you know he is, you know, he's clearly in his plans for the future. But Will reckons he will be back playing at the start of November. He'll probably have played a couple of under twenty three games. Uh, before just to ease him in but he thinks he'll be back by November Gearbrandt and I were in uh, were in Monaco um, where uh, we watched the Champions League draw Gearbrandt to stick around for the Europa League draw too which is just kind of funny um I don't like going through groups and saying this one's good, this one's bad. So, like, unless you guys have anything interesting to say, let's just do this very, very quickly. Do we all agree? United got a very easy draw. Celtic are out of a very difficult draw. Chelsea's draw is pretty tough. Liverpool's draw is not quite a doddle, but pretty darn close to it. City, also very manageable. And, um, and Spurs got totally screwed. Uh, although I don't think it's, I don't think Borussia Dortmund are as good as or as terrifying as as people think. Mm, I, I would, I would, I would really agree with that, and I, and I, yes. I also think that, um, in a way, for Sp- I mean, we're, we're gonna we're gonna go on to talk about it, but I think in a way for Spurs, it's actually it's also an opportunity in some ways because 
like it or not, there is there is this real sense that there there's a bit of a Wembley hoodoo going on, to use the uh, the phrase du jour. Um, but uh, what better way to rid yourself of this curse than by Real slaying Real Madrid <laughs> at, at Wembley? I agree. I think that I think that it could be absolutely rocking in these these nights in the Champions League and and. Uh, Really, kind of special nights, and it's it's an opportunity for these players to step up and kind of. Yeah, I have to say, if there's any Spurs players who are like anybody who's creeped out by playing in front of eighty thousand people, these three games. I mean, Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund, obviously huge stadiums as well. This is going to be like this is you know other than Apple L, this is like the big stadium group. So it, it is a it is a pretty decent way to work through it. Um, this issue with uh, with polarization has been talked about for a while. I was kind of surprised Friday morning, uh, and it's the subject of my of my column in the game. Um, a group of us had the opportunity to, to sit down with uh, well, UEFA president Alexander Shefrin, who um, is kind of an interesting guy. Um, not just because he's from Slovenia and went to the University of Slovenia around the same time as uh, the uh, first lady of the United States did. What struck me most about him is I came out and said, "Guys, this is a problem. We have a problem in that." You know, there's a whole bunch of historically big clubs that cannot compete, and there's been an explosion in, in, in revenue and commercial and TV income. It's flowed to, to the top, and we need to address this. And he brought up the issue. He's not saying we're going to have a salary cap and a luxury tax, and this is how it's going to work. But what he did say was a decade ago when UEFA first thought of financial fair play, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge representing the clubs and Michel Platini representing UEFA went and they spoke to the European Commission and says, no, absolutely not. The European law says you can't do it. It's anti-competitive. No salary cap, no luxury tax, impossible. And he says, I don't think it's impossible now. And next month in September, he's going to go talk to them to see whether they're open for it. And what's more, he says, almost everybody wants some sort of salary cap or luxury tax mechanism. Are you guys in that almost everybody, first of all? It, it can't kind of go on the way it is, the, the, the amount of money that footballers are earning, basically. Um, so I think I think it's positive that somebody is looking at taking at taking steps and what can be done. Whether a salary cap is going to be the, it's going to be the answer to that, I don't know. Um, it all depends on how it's implemented and, and whatever else, of yeah. course. I agree. I think it's, it's positive to be having a conversation about competitive balance and, and obviously, ultimately... It is in everyone's interest long term for at least some competitive balance to be preserved because to take the example of Paris Saint-Germain, it's important who did not win the league last year. And it's important for them that I think for their brand that they're perceived to be in a league that, that is at least competitive, you know, preserves the feeling that the competitions that you're in are actually interesting. I read your piece this morning and it's very interesting. The luxury tax, you're talking about a pot of money. Who would this be distributed to? Basically, and again, Sefrin did not go into any specifics and nothing's going to change until 2021 anyway. Let's bear that in mind because of the memorandum of understanding. But the way luxury tax works is you you come up with a threshold for what you're allowed to spend, whether whether it's wages. In, in U.S. sports, it's been wages, obviously, because they don't have transfer fees. But you could do it in wages. You could do it in, in transfer spend. If you go beyond that level, it's okay you don't get punished, but let's say your wage threshold is 100 million and you spend, let's say, 120 million in wages. What might happen is, okay, so every pound that you've gone over, you have to put a pound 
into the central pot. Um, so if you spent 120 million, you would then need to spend another 20 million, which would go into a central pot. And that part would then become Seferin's bonus at the end of the year. No, um, <laughs> that part. This is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Where does that money go? That part would then get redistributed to rival teams. Again, you need to figure out how to do it. Certainly, that that's how it works in in, in the U.S. leagues that have a luxury tax, right? So that money then gets re- redistributed to clubs who have who have less of it because it's impossible for them to grow. I mean, I mentioned Ajax, right? Huge club, but. Holland and the Dutch economy will never be Germany or or England or Spain. Ajax will never be able to compete financially with Barcelona and Real Madrid and Manchester United ever, right? So what you do is, is like, you know, you'll never be able to compete if you hit certain targets and these other people over here overspend, then there's a mechanism where some of this money flows to you and then, you know, Perhaps it would come with a proviso that you can't just take it out in dividends, but you have to actually spend it on your squad. So you give higher wages or, or new signings or whatever. What about the teams in the, the Dutch league? How would they feel about uh, getting, getting that's, extra money for, for not being as rich as other teams in the Champions League? That's one of the big issues with this redistributive mechanism. So in other words, you either apply it across the board um, or it has a knock-on effect. A lot of people might say that knock-on effect already kind of exists in the sense that, you know, if you're Olympiakos, I think I've won the league in Greece like 18 out of the last 20 years, something stupid like that. And, you know, they qualify for the Champions League uh, or the Europa League and they go out very early. But even those few million that they make still moves the needle and gives them so much power over the rest of the league. So it's already there, right? So it's giving them even more money domestically wouldn't make so much of a difference. It's an issue. What I find interesting is that for the first time, we had somebody who is actually actively talking about it. He talked about other non-sporting measures, limiting squad sizes in the Champions League, which personally, I don't know how much of an effect that's really going to have, but maybe it's maybe it might. Um, and, uh, and limiting the effect of loans, which I didn't really understand when he brought it up because I would have thought that loans are actually something that allows mid-sized teams to compete with bigger ones. I just thought it was interesting that, you know, he's he's going to go to the commission, he's going to make a big deal out of it. Um, but what I'm interested in, is he right when he says he has support? I mean, when you guys speak to fans or other people, are people slightly turned off by the fact that only six, seven, eight teams can win the Champions League? I would say well, more, uh, well, you grew up, there were only two teams who could win, so. <laughs> I would say it's more likely that people are think that there's only so many teams that are going to get into the Champions League from the Premier League, in all likelihood. Do you believe in competitive balance, Gearbrand? Is that something that we should be striving for? Or is it best when the big boys go and just crush <laughs> the little ones? Um, well, I think everyone kind of, everyone believes in competitive balance, don't they? I mean, th- it's one of those things that theoretically is quite an easy sell. It's the actual measures behind it right. that are a hard sell. You know, once you actually start getting down to the nitty gritty of capping salaries or, or, or whatever it is, there's another element to this, um, which is suffering hinted at, and I didn't really get into it in the column, but the reason big profitable clubs, especially clubs that are investor-led, like Manchester United and, and, and Arsenal and, and whatnot, basically this equates to spending controls, right? And it, the same reason they backed financial fair play, because it brings down losses and it, it equates to a spending cap. 
and spending controls, and that has a calming effect on expenses and boosts your profits, right? So somebody like the Glazers would absolutely love this, right? I don't think there's any question about it. Clubs like Barcelona and Real Madrid that are run as social trusts, meh, maybe not so much. Clubs who are willing to go and lose money year on year to establish their dominance, especially on their way up, like Paris Saint-Germain, probably they would have a problem with it. Time now for some quick hits. And because this is Gregor's first time, I believe, I will explain uh, uh, the rules. They're, they're very clear, very simple. I will ask you a question. Um, you will respond in 25 seconds or less with something pithy and insightful. After uh, 20 seconds, you will hear the following sound effect. And after 25 seconds, you will hear this sound effect. And then I will start shouting over you. So please, please be concise and interesting. Chelsea roll over Everton 2-0 with goals from Alvaro Morata and Cesc Fabregas. Uh, Gearbrandt, you were there. You saw it unfold. Rumors of their demise are vastly exaggerated. Yes? Yes. Um, I think it's amazing how quickly... Well, first it's amazing how quickly the mood kind of went sour, particularly at, at half-time against Burnley when they were 3-0 down. There was actually quite a lot of gloom around and sort of Conte's negativity and well, the whole... they were 3-0 down and they had him... But down a also about generally about their prospects for the season um, and Conte's negativity fed into that. But since then, they've obviously... <laughs> that one was unfair because you, jo- you jumped in on me on You that can one. finish! Okay. Since then, they almost came back from three goals down with ten, then nine men. They then go and beat Tottenham... Wembley issue aside, who haven't been beaten at home for a whole season with a squad that was completely kind of ravaged by injury and suspension. And you had Christensen playing. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then they beat Everton. Correct. So, yes, fundamentally, Chelsea, good. Now, speaking of Everton, Gregor, they spent a lot of money, um, but I'm not sure how these parts fit together. Could a front three of Sigurdsson, Sandro and Rooney be any more sluggish? And it's really Rooney and Sigurdsson. They would have to try hard, I think. Um Koeman's made no... Uh, he's not hiding the fact that he needs another striker. I think without Calvert-Lewin up there, you saw what he did against Man City. He was a real handful. He stretched stretched the back line. He was a, was a good option going forward for them. And I think without a bit of pace up there, uh, they will struggle. So I don't. I think they will, will need to add another striker. Let me modulate this little bonus question for you. Is there a rational way Sigurdsson and Everton can play together in a Koeman system? Sigurdsson can. Sigurdsson and Rooney together, both on the pitch at the same time. Yeah, I think they're both intelligent players, but you do need someone else with with pace there. I think the two the two could play behind someone else, like Calvert Lewin. But I think they want to be doing a little bit better than that. He I was, was thinking more off the ball, but Manchester United make it three from three and are top of the league. Romelu Lukaku misses a penalty, but it's no big deal. Gearbrandt, are you feeling it yet? I am feeling it, um, and I think what's what's key is that Mourinho seems to have found a system that gets the best out of Pogba and Katarian. We sort of wondered, didn't we, whether Pogba was actually, whether that position in the 2 of a 4-2-3-1 worked for him, but playing alongside a more defensive-minded player in Matic seems to have actually solved it for him. And I, I prefer Mkhitaryan playing in the centre as a 10 rather than on the wing. So you're on the bandwagon. Nice one. Uh, Tottenham take the lead against Burnley. Kane misses a bunch of chances, and then they suffer a last-ditch equaliser. Gregor, you're going to take the easy way out and blame Wembley? Because Potch says, blame me, blame me. He's falling on his sword. <laughs> uh, I think the fact that we're having this, this discussion week after week means there is an issue. And 
whether they like it or not, I think players can't hide from that. They see, they they know they know what's going on. Uh, but of course, Harry Kane missed a bunch of chances. Wood came on, had a big impact. That's the real problem for for Tottenham. Even if they might have a little a little devil on their shoulder, a little kind of uh, a little worry in the background. Obviously, he sticks up for the players. <laughs> Newcastle pummel West Ham 3-0, which means the Rafalution is back on. Gibran, are you a little more confident now, or is it just that West Ham are absolutely awful right now and not playing to a standard befitting a team that won the World Cup? I don't know about Newcastle. I'm, I'm still a bit kind of... I remain to be convinced, but West Ham are a really not a good side at the moment. Um, and I think among many other issues, most of them relating to the kind of cohesion of the team and they're a club that has totally lost their touch in the transfer market last season Edemilson Fernandez was the signing of the season it remains to be seen how this summer's signings fair but they haven't started in a way when when they actually decide to play uh, Lanzini West Brom and Stoke battle to a 1-1 draw and afterwards Pulis and Hughes argue over the length of the grass Gregor is this relevant or is it just petty and if you're bored by this, you can just sit and praise Peter Crouch, who at age 37 is scoring again and has not retired from international duty. It's not relevant, no. I think really this is just the two guys who don't who are not big fans of each other. They tried to keep a lid on it before the game, um, and after watching a dour 90 minutes, which Hughes was at pains to to say how bad it was, and and it was uh, suggesting that was because of West Brom and their style of play. Pulis obviously came out fighting, and uh, and there's still no love lost there. If they were both on a boat and it was sinking and you could only save one and hand them the future of uh, football on the scepter dial, who would it be? That's a, that's a horrible question to ask, but obviously Hughes. <laughs> 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 I think Steve Parrish might agree with you. After you heaved Pulis overboard, would you just be left with the, the cap? Just floating. (laughs) (laughs) Gab, one for you. Uh, Reports in France say that PSG have shelled out £166 million for Kylian Mbappe. How is this possible with financial fair play? Yeah, I'm wondering about this too. I mean, the early reports indicate that what they're going to do is they're going to take him on loan for a year with an obligation to buy in a year's time. I know people are like, oh, look, they're getting around FFP. Um, It's not a big deal. Uh, a lot of clubs have done this before. You're basically shunting the payment down a season. PSG themselves did a few years ago when they signed uh, when they signed Aurier from Toulouse. Was I don't know, um, but uh, it's not like this money's going away. And in a year's time, then they're going to have this and the um, and the Neymar money on their account. So yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I hope uh, Seferin is uh, true to his word when he says that if clubs have breached, um, they will be punished and punished severely, he said with a glint in his eye. Hello, my name is Charlie Scott. I'm half of The Sweeper, which is The Times' fancy football service. We send out an email every Friday giving you our tips for the weekend and just relevant match day stats, that kind of thing. I'm here with Paddy Von Baer. Hello. We're just going to give you a quick recap of what went on this weekend. Uh, we had some good tips in Friday's email, but like most of you who captained Sergio Aguero, Harry Kane and Romelu Lukaku, 
It was a bit of a tough week. The game week of the underdog, I'd say. Yeah, it was a strange one. Lukaku obviously scored no points, which is um, never particularly good. Harry Kane's August drought continues for another year. We managed to rely on a couple of old faithfuls with, with the tip. Sadio Mane came through again with another eight-point haul. Uh, David Silva and... Uh, Marcus Alonso with some useful returns. Uh, one at a budget price was Kiko Firmenia, who's the Watford fullback, for those who don't know, who's turning into quite an interesting budget option at 4.5 million, a second consecutive clean sheet for them. And he got two bonus points for a second week running as well. So um, the Watford defence might be an interesting place to start finding value going forward, and, uh, and especially the Spanish fullback. The top scoring player in Game Week 3 was Kieran Clark, the Newcastle defender who scored and picked up 15 points during their win against West Ham. Kyle Norton in second place, uh, the Swansea City fullback, he picked up 12 points. And actually six of the top 11 scoring players in Game Week 3 were worth 5 million or less, which is quite surprising. So there is value out there. And Kieran Clark helped uh, Kevin Fahey and his team, uh, Mayo Vallecano, to the top of the Time Sport League, which is uh, our, our mini league, which is not so mini now. There's more than 1,000 players in it, I think. And uh, if you sign up to the sweeper, then you'll get access to the league as well. You can back our uh, steam writers and Kevin, obviously, who is uh, is top of the league now. So well done to him. And he's top, despite captioning Lukaku and having 20 points on his bench. So yeah, well done, Kevin. Sign up for the sweeper this week and you will get the code for our mini league in the email on Friday. And obviously it's the international break coming up. So um a bit of a lull from the from the Premier League schedule, but there's all sorts to think about. Notably, wild cards. Uh, people start playing their wild cards now, generally, um, which is, of course, as many transfers as, as you wish in a single game week. Uh, we'll be uploading a piece to the Times Sport website this afternoon, which is Monday, uh, with various things to look out for this week, and especially some strategic tips on how to play your wild card. There you go. There's our recap of the sweeper. And remember, you can sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my guests, the excellent Gregor Robertson and, of course, James Gilbrand. Remember, it's just £8 for an eight-week trial. You can just search the Times online. That'll give you access to our newspaper and also highlights from every single Premier League game, every single Champions League game, every single Europa League game. Wow. And uh, the FA Cup. It's the international break, but we shall return next Monday on The Game Podcast. Till next time, bye-bye. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hold up. 